Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today, we are talking about the weather and forecasting and finding your people in this dark and cold and often lonely universe with two of Open Snow's weather forecasters, Brian Allegretto and Evan Thayer. Now, if you are already into weather forecasting, I guarantee that you are going to dig this conversation. And if you aren't someone who has historically geeked out hard about all the factors that go into predicting snowfall at your favorite ski areas or last season's historic snowfall, well, you're still probably going to want to hear from these two how much stock you ought to put into the whole El Nino versus La Nina thing, or whether the stated snowfall amounts at various ski areas are fake news. Now, true blisterheads already know that we are big fans of open snow around here, and this conversation, I promise you, is just going to underscore for you that folks like Brian and Evan and Joel Gratz are more passionate about weather forecasting than most of us are about anything. Well, except Vermonters, about Vermont. That's like the royal flush of passion. Nothing tops it. Now, before we get started, a couple of quick notes here. Our next Blister Summit in Mount Crested Butte, Colorado is happening February 4th through the 8th, and the backcountry portion of the summit, where you can go ski and splitboard in the Crested Butte backcountry with professional guides, well, that is free to all Blister Summit attendees, thanks to the support from, speaking of Vermont, Bagbalm. So, whether you're new to backcountry touring or have tons of backcountry experience, this is a way to be able to safely explore the Crested Butte backcountry with groups of terrific people who share a similar experience level as your own, and you can do all that while demoing a variety of backcountry gear in the process. All you have to do to participate in the Blister Summit backcountry program is register for our summit by January 15th. So do that, and we will include a link in the show notes of this episode. And speaking of this episode, it is presented by the Spokane Alpine House, which is our blister recommended shop for those in the inland Northwest. For 40 years now, they have been passionate about getting you and the family ready for your adventure. They carry a large selection of both ski and snowboard equipment, so whether you are a seasoned expert who loves good gear or you're a beginner, well, they are going to have the right gear for you. Spokane Alpine House also offers custom boot fitting by their master certified boot fitters. They have a full service ski and board shop and a large rental program for both kids and adults. They also have a junior buyback program, which helps keep kids affordably on the hill each season, while also making sure that they have the right gear. Furthermore, Blister members receive one free wax this season, plus 20% off custom boot work, and 20% off any ski or snowboard service. So the next time you're in the Spokane area, be sure to stop by the Spokane Alpine House and of course, tell them we sent you. 
All right, last bit of news, folks. Tomorrow, Tuesday, on our new Blister Cinematic podcast, we are dropping our third episode, and we are covering what is probably the craziest, but also arguably the greatest film in the entire history of ski and snowboarding films. That, of course, would be the 1983 epic Apocalypse Snow. And joining me to dissect that film are Mountain Gazette owner and editor Mike Rogie. Mike brings the heat in this one. And also the strikingly handsome Justin Bob. Justin is bringing the goods on this one as well. And finally, folks, just as we are dropping this Blister podcast tomorrow, Monday morning, I am supposed to be on a podcast with the star of Apocalypse Snow, the one and only Regis Roland. And so if all goes according to plan, you will also be hearing from the very hero of Apocalypse Snow to get his take on an absolute high point, I don't know, probably in the entire history of Western civilization. So please go watch this 26-minute film, Apocalypse Snow. You can find it free online. And then Tuesday morning... You're going to get to hear it broken down in an amazing way. And so, yeah, get yourself ready. It's a good one. And now, with that public service announcement out of the way, let's talk to Brian and Evan about forecasting and last season and this season. And again, it's really this episode is about finding your own people. It's about human connection. You're going to see what I mean. Trust me. All right, here we go. Well, I'm very happy to be here with a couple of flakes from Open Snow. Brian and Evan, we're recording this Wednesday afternoon. This is opening day here in Crested Butte. And so I want to talk a bit about, you know, this coming season with you guys. But I think the place where we have to begin is talking about last winter. It sure was an interesting one. And you guys had to try to forecast this whole thing. So let's kind of start there. Brian, I'm hoping you've recovered a bit, maybe gotten a bit of sleep, uh, you know, since last winter. But talk a bit about some of the things that you were seeing or that were really stand out now with a little bit of distance on uh, one very interesting winter we had last year. One of the things is it just wouldn't stop. I have one standout period, I think, at the beginning of January last year where we had about an eight to 10 day dry spell. And it's typical to get dry spells several times throughout the year and then a week of big storms. Uh, that's how Tahoe gets a lot of snow. And last year it just started snowing at the beginning of November. And outside of that 10 day period in January, it feels like it just didn't stop snowing at all. Like every time we're like, oh, maybe it'll be a drier period in a week from now, the models would switch back to stormy. and. It just snowed and snowed and snowed and snowed all the way through the end of ski season, right through the spring. Um, I just don't remember it ever being that consistent where we didn't have any breaks. <laughs> so that that was the vantage point from your position around Tahoe. Evan, you were based mostly or exclusively out of Utah last season, or were you jumping around spots yourself? No, I was last season. I was ex just focusing on Utah, and let me tell you, I didn't have the bandwidth to focus on anywhere else because, as Brian said, 
the word I use is relentless. And I mean that in like the best possible way. We were exhausted as forecasters because it never stopped. We were up at 4 a.m. every single morning writing forecasts. But I would happily do that all again because we shattered records last year in Utah and it was the best powder season I've ever had. Speaking of records, there was a bit of a competition going on sort of between the Tahoe area and I don't know if we want to go into the whole state of Utah or sections of Utah about where, you know, we were seeing the most snowfall. And that actually got me thinking a little bit about how are these records determined? Are we taking people's word for it? Are we all in agreement about this is when it starts, this is when it ends? How how valid or sketchy are these quote-unquote records? I would say... There are no rules regulating this. So um, with that said, they're valid. But when a resort starts counting their seasonal snowfall, there's nobody, there's no rule that says you have to count when you open or you can count the snow that falls before you open or after you close. Um, And there's no police out there monitoring, at least officially monitoring what you report. So Essentially, we are taking every ski resort's word for how much they got. However, I think we have technology now and we have remote telemetry and snow stake webcams that it's a little bit harder for these ski resorts to, say, fudge their amount of snowfall they've gotten. I don't know. Do you agree with that, Brian? Yeah, and now we have estimated snowfall tools on our website. So if ski areas don't report or if you're not in a ski area, it shows you how much snow fell right next to the ski area. Um, or estimates it before they report. And so if we estimate 10 inches and they say 20, we're going to be wondering why our tool is so far off or why they're over-reporting. So yeah, there's a lot more tools out there now scientifically to kind of catch what's being reported by humans. Overall, to answer your question, Jonathan, I would say, uh, generally speaking, the seasonal snowfall reports you see on resorts' websites are pretty accurate. Okay. Does this mean, you know, marketing people at ski areas are more honest than they used to be because they kind of have to be? Or do you think they're still lying liars and they just pray every day that they don't get caught? I'm going to say that the marketing people I know are pretty honest, so I'll leave it at that. (laughs) Okay. I just wanted to see if I could get a like really incendiary (laughs) comment out of one of you on that front, stir up some stuff, you know? I don't know what the point would be of lying at what, to get people up there and then be pissed off that you're lying to them? I, I don't know. That's why people used to accuse us of hyping forecasts. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. Then people will just think we're lying all the time and they won't come to our site and nobody will advertise anymore. That's a great point. I don't know. There's a lot of weird stuff in the ski industry, you know? So, you know, like my personal favorite topic about why we open ski areas before Thanksgiving. We actually just talked about that for like 30 minutes and I, I just met Brian and Evan and immediately started just being angry about stuff. So I'm, yeah, I've, I've calmed down a bit since then, but, uh, the biggest thing in Tahoe that ends up being why some ski areas report more than others is because they're, they're, they're measuring at different elevations and the higher in elevation you go, the colder it is, the more snow you get with the same amount of precipitation. So if one skier is measuring at 7,000 as their official report and one's at 8,500, so you can't really scientifically 
compare. You can't say, here's all the ski areas. Let's compare them for last season. If they're all measuring all different elevations, you can't compare. Um, so it may be scientific for their spot, but it's not scientific. You can't scientifically compare to the, the rest of the area. Okay. So I think you just invalidated all, all <laughs> recording of snow forecasts aside from just looking at areas compared to what they have done in the past, assuming they haven't changed how they're recording snowfall. They would all have to do it the same way at the same elevation. I would think to sit there and compare to each other. Uh, and they're obviously not doing that. Um, we are very lucky in the Tahoe Basin because we have Berkeley Central Sierra Snow Laboratory, which has actual scientists who lives there and measures snow with real instruments uh, that are very expensive. So, And he's out there verifying the instruments every day. So having that, that's an official snow, snow report. But uh, most places don't have that guy. This feels like another one of those moments where somebody from California is talking about how California is the best at everything. <laughs> so um, I deal with this a lot with Cody Townsend. Like specifically, he will never put a time zone on anything. So he'll be like, let's talk at 3 p.m. today. And then every single time I'll be like, Pacific time or mountain? And then he'll just kind of act like, well, no, it's I shouldn't have to because California is the epicenter of the universe, apparently, to people who live there. Uh, he likes to hype how powdery it is in Tahoe when people think it's just cement. But he's also does a lot of backcountry skiing, much higher elevation in the ski areas, more comparable with the Western resorts. So there is drier snow up there where he's at. Down the ski areas, compared to the ski areas and other parts of the country, we get wet snow. <laughs> I think we should stay on this top topic about precipitation, levels of precipitation and levels of snowfall, because it's not the same thing. And I'd love you two to kind of get into the weeds and like break this down for people. Cause this is another way to cheat it. Right. It's like, anyway, explain please. Yeah. Well, in Tahoe, it's different than Utah, which Evan can expand on. But in, in Tahoe, a lot of times, it's, is it raining or snowing? Uh, and then when it does turn to snow above the freezing level, it, it, especially in a warm AR, atmospheric river type storm, the snow ratios are very low. You can, It could be snowing at a seven to one ratio, which is seven inches of snow for every inch of liquid that's falling. Uh, but when it's 20 degrees out, it could be at a 15 to 20 to one ratio. So you're getting 20 inches for every inch instead of seven. It's almost triple the amount. So depending if you're at up at 9,000 feet or 6,000 feet, it could be a difference between rain uh, halfway up. You could be talking about a seven, eight to one ratio. And then at above 9,000, it could be a 15 to 21 ratio. I mean, it's just like the temperature and elevation, it makes a huge difference. I don't have the snow level and ratio issues that Brian deals with as often in Tahoe. Utah storms tend to be colder and snow levels aren't normally an issue. But, you know, a lot of people look at their forecasts. They look at these kind of icon based forecasts that just have a picture of a snowflake and give you the temperature. And maybe if you're lucky, the wind, uh, what they don't tell you is the direction of the wind often and how that affects snow. Another thing they don't tell you, I think is so often overlooked in the ski industry is the sun angle, uh, in skiing, if you're skiing powder, you want a low sun angle. The lowest sun angle is around the solstice. So from middle of November through the end of January, that's the time period where it's going to be, if it's 20, 25 degrees on the mountain, let's say, and it snowed, 
because the sun angle is so low, you're not going to get any sun effect on the snow. It's going to stay perfect, even on southerly aspects usually. But in February, and especially in March, in the spring, you better get after that powder within a day or two because that is going to get sunbaked. It's going to get a crust on it. Um, and it could be the exact same temperature. It could be 20 degrees in March. But the snow does not stay the same in March as it does in December or January. And most of that's because of sun angle. But you almost never hear the average skier talking about sun angle. Brian? Yeah, I, I agree. And it, we're in a more mild climate. I mean, in Tahoe, it has to snow four or 500 inches a year for there to be snow in the ground all season because it's typically in the 40s when it's not storming. And then when it's storming, it's in the 30s and then 20s behind the storm, maybe briefly. But then it's back in the 40s and then 50s all spring and sunny. And um, it, it's just completely different out here than it is where Evan's at. This conversation's moot in Tahoe because if you don't get after it within a day or two in Tahoe, like you said, it's in the 40s and it's baked anyway, no matter what time of year. Yep. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's, it's amazing. People come to Tahoe because you can ski in a T-shirt a lot and it is so beautiful after a storm. But you have to have a lot of snow when you live in a milder climate. And this also is interesting, right? When I don't, I don't really hang out with people who do this, to be honest, but, um, you know, people, uh, it's a fair thing to do. They're like, Oh, I like skiing this area or I'm going to plan my ski trip 10 months out a year out because these ski areas are getting these huge, um, snowfall totals or averages. And yet, I mean, you know, talking, just bringing in the rather obvious point, but sometimes we overlook it when it comes down to temperatures, you know, Crested Butte, Taos, New Mexico, these are places that don't get big, big, high average, you know, annual snowfalls, but they stay cold, right? And when places stay cold, you don't need as much snow and the skiing can stay really good. And I think that, um, yeah, for people that are just like, oh, look at these areas with the high annual snowfall totals, those seem like safer bets to them. Maybe not quite as simple as all that. Does that, does that seem right to you? Yeah. Which is why I choose to live and ski in Utah, which gets a lot of snow and stays cold the best of both worlds mm -hmm. if you're planning 10 months in advance people will call me friends especially and say hey i'm coming to tahoe at some point when should i book my trip six months in advance to be guaranteed the best snow well, nobody knows the answer to that for real uh, but and then there's years like last year where it was good all season starting in thanksgiving but if i was to be a betting man i would come after president's day every year to be guaranteed the best chance at the best conditions and the ski areas are not going to like me saying that because they make all their money before that. <laughs> My take on planning ski trips 10 months in advance is do not plan a destination. And I, I understand passes and financial constraints and wanting to make plans. But if you're putting in the effort and you're spending the money to do a ski trip and it's a sport that is so condition dependent, I'm always like, pick a week and block that week out. You know, you have to put in your requests at work or whatever you need to do. But then, you know, when you're a week away, then make the plans on where you're going to go. Because if you're going to do a ski trip and you're coming from the east, you want to go to a place that's going to have fresh snow and have the right conditions. 
And when you're a week away, you can do that. And of course, like I said, I understand not everybody can do this, but I always wish people kept that flexibility of their destination when planning a ski trip. I'm glad you guys are like trip advisors. (laughs) That's cool. Well, Brian, I feel like Brian's always telling people when to come visit Tahoe and, and, and that feels like that's part of our job, right? Like we're trying to advise, we probably get that question every day, all winter long from somebody, when should I come? And like, it's such a difficult thing to answer because everybody's taste is different. Uh, but I feel like truly my job is half being a a trip advisor for people. The difference with us though, being in the industry, the three of us and, and our teams is that we live in ski area areas full, full time. And we're hanging out with people that are hardcore skiers. And so we get an overwhelming amount of people around us saying powder, 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 powder. But the majority of people coming and giving revenue to these areas can't ski powder. They get in waist deep snow and they fall down and they can't get up and they're in the lodge resting by lunchtime. So they love to come after storm. So if it's, it could be sunny all week, the base is the same by the weekend, by the following weekend, the base isn't shrinking. It's the same base. And if it was sunny all week, they won't come skiing. But if it snowed on Wednesday and it's sunny by the weekend, that's their favorite. So they still come because it snowed, but they want it to be groomed by the time they get there. And that's what I learned working in the industry. That's when they make all the money and the crowds come. It's amazing. It's like, well, it was the same conditions last weekend, even though it didn't snow the Wednesday before. So why'd you come this weekend? It's not like you're skiing powder. <laughs> you just saw it snowed. I don't know what to say about that. I really don't. Is there more we should talk about from last winter? Do you have stats, cool numbers? Can we invalidate more records? What can we do here? Tell us more. I would say that the stat that blows my mind is just 903 and that's 903 inches of snow that fell at Alta last year which just shattered the record but anecdotally the reason I think that's important is because we've always asked ourselves like how much snow is too much snow and we found that we found the answer to that question last year because everything was dandy and rosy through most of the winter and then they had the biggest month ever in march with something like 240 inches of snow or something absurd like that falling uh in little cottonwood canyon and that just collapsed everything and i mean like the road closed for literally the majority of a three-week period resorts couldn't open for a week on end and we finally found the answer to that question how much snow is too much snow did you get did you get interlodged at all, Evan? Yes, I did. I got interlodged. I was there was a Friday I was skiing where suddenly you started just hearing people yelling from like lift housing and everywhere, little lodges, like mid mountain lodges. I was like skiing by and I heard people yelling. I couldn't quite figure it out. And people are kinda of, there's this weird vibe on the mountain all of a sudden and it was it was snowing so hard. And I'm like, what is going on? So I skied up to a stranger. I was like, Do you know what's going on? And he's like they announced an emergency inner lodge. And so an emergency inner lodge, every skier who was out on the mountain had to ski to the nearest building just immediately then. Like you have to go to the nearest building you can get to right then. And so uh, I did that and I ended up, I think I went to Alta Lodge at the base there and we were inner lodge that whole evening. But luckily it wasn't as long. I've been part of the two longest inner lodges in Alta's history and it wasn't nearly as long as either of those. So thankfully... 
Wait, as part of the two longest inner lodges at Alta, did you actually tell me you got to actually ski though? Yes, I did eventually. Okay. Uh, two years ago, I went up went up to spend the night at a friend's place in Little Cottonwood Canyon, and it was a Monday night. Got up there, but it was like this is going to be great. Woke up on Tuesday. They announced there was going to be an inner lodge, so I was like, it's going to be a country club day on Tuesday. Nobody's going to be able to make it up the canyon. I thought I had planned this perfectly. Little did I know. It just nuked and didn't stop snowing until Thursday morning, and we were interlodged for like 68 hours. Um, and finally, at about 11 a.m. on Thursday, they opened the mountain, but the road was still closed. So we were able to at least go outside and get some turns in, and I think it snowed about 65 inches during that period. And so that was the longest in history, and we almost beat that last year, but not quite. The bit we had big snowfall last year as well. I think Sugar Bowl was the only one that recorded over 800 inches outside of Mammoth. Now Mammoth doesn't always accurately or on time report the top of the mountain, so we just kept the base amount, which was over 700 inches. And so Mike Crockin, our Mammoth forecaster, thinks they got close to a thousand at the top of the mountain, just using um, how much it should have snowed more at each thousand feet as you went up above the base. So yeah, we had maybe mammoth hitting close to a thousand, uh, sugar bowl in the Tahoe basin reported 809 because they reported a little bit longer than some of the other ski areas in the spring, but, um, huge year. But what was significant was how cold it was. It was as far as I could see my records going back to 1952 was the coldest, snowiest winter since 1952 but the cold is what made big deal because we've had big years before uh the 16 17 season is one that sticks out in a lot of people's minds uh, but we had so many atmospheric rivers we had so much warm air and a lot of storms that we ended that year with record precipitation at 196 percent of average but only 146 percent of average snowfall which is still a huge year but it was 50% less on average uh, versus last year was complete opposite. We only had 145% of average precipitation and 195% of average snowfall. So snowfall outpaced total precipitation by 50%. So 16, 17 was one of the warmest, lowest snow ratio years with more rain on record. And then last year was like the biggest since 52, as far as snow outpacing total precipitation. Wow. Okay, can we go back to this? We were talking about like the recipe or the ingredients that actually add up to lots of snowfall. So you've done a nice job of talking about the role that precipitation plays and how it isn't the end-all be-all. We've talked a little bit about sun angle. We talked about cold is good. And do we want to like wind? What should we let's talk about more on the wind side of things? And Tahoe is a big wind uh, absorber <laughs> with a jet stream coming right in overhead off the Pacific with nothing really to hinder it. And so uh, we tend to get winds up to 80 to 100 miles an hour every single time we have a good storm. And so I have to be really on top of the wind forecast where uh, in the Rockies, it's not as big of a deal because ski areas will shut their lifts down at 60 plus miles an hour. And so pretty much every storm, the upper mountains are closed until the storm starts to wind down. And so you might be like, yeah, big storm. It's going to snow when I get fresh tracks, you get there and you can't get on the mountain because it's so windy. Most, most big storms. Yeah. I would sum it up as just wind is bad. I mean, <laughs> it's important. It's going to happen. But <laughs> when it comes to ski conditions, wind 
I mean, it reduces the the snow ratios because you're actually getting snowflakes colliding together or higher chance of that and becoming more dense. So it reduces the snow ratios. It's not going to be as fluffy. Uh, obviously, you're going to get exposed areas completely blown off and then a much denser wind-loaded area, which can cause stability issues and all that comes with that. Um, and it makes it feel colder than it is. I mean, it just it's not as much fun to ski in the wind. I don't think that's that hard to say. But I will say there's one exception to that. And that's wind buff. If you've ever skied wind buff, yeah. oh man, so right. We were about to fight. Now we don't have to fight. <laughs> See, there is that exception. Wind buff, wind buff. When it smooths out the mountain, and you get that little layer of nice dense, like, and you can just rip and go. So that's the one exception. But aside from that, wind is bad. Yeah, wind's bad. But wind buff is not. And and now you've actually got me thinking about probably some of my favorite wind buff I've ever skied is actually at Alta. Mm, like, yeah. West wrestler. That, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They call it West yeah. Buffler when on the days like That's that. Right. Yeah. So nice. Just rip down there at high speed and it just feels like you're invincible. That's funny. We, we like, we talk a lot about like, I'll often talk about, I actually am not sure whether I prefer pow or like perfect chalk. Like I love chalk. And then I've been kind of, I was actually just thinking a couple days ago about how much I love slush bumps, (laughs) but I kind of forgot wind buff because wind buff factors real high up there for me. Like as I've been just like fantasizing about different snow conditions. So yeah, no, that's, that's a proper identification. And frankly, I think my experience is, I don't know if this is true, like more, any more true of places like Crested Butte or Taos or a Telluride. But sometimes after big wind events, you know where to go. And like, yeah, you know where where things have been wind scoured and where things have been wind affected the right way. And, you know, if, if you know a mountain well enough, you can have some real good times you know, thanks to some wind. So, But we got to remember scientifically there is no snow without wind because we need something to blow that air up and over the mountains to lift it, cool it, cause precipitation and snow. So we don't like the strong winds, but without any wind to blow the air and move it, <laughs> it would be sunny. <laughs> See, I like this. You guys started super anti-wind and now we've come around and I feel like we have a a, a happier you know, appreciation uh, for wind. So I, I think we've ended up in a good spot. <laughs> well, you want to talk about yeah. forecasting headaches. You were talking about the nuance of snowfall. That's when you get, especially in the Colorado, where uh, you have all these individual high peaks facing different directions and the wind direction makes a huge difference. The prevailing wind in Tahoe is southwest and, and the mountains are pretty much uh, parallel to that uh, or perpendicular to that, you know, going north to south and the wind is blowing predominantly out of the west. So it's a lot easier to forecast storms because the wind's blowing one direction. Something I really want to ask you guys about El Nino versus La Nina. Personally, I pay zero attention to this. Am I wrong to pay zero attention to this? Are these helpful forecasting generalizations? You guys are kind of the experts. What should we how much should we make about the, you know, predictions of El Nino, La Nina stuff? It's a big deal in California, usually, if it's a typical La Nina or El Nino. La Nina was last year, we had a pretty strong one. 
and we knew it was going to be a cold winter and we didn't know exactly how much snow you can have well below average and well above average and everything in between on a La Nina or an El Nino. But the La Ninas tend to be colder, which is since we have such a snow level issue here, uh, we tend to have less snow level issues in La Nina and more in El Nino. Uh, and then overall for California, that those warm waters along the equator, they're feeding the, the southern branch of the jet stream into Southern California. So they tend to get wetter seasons in El Nino and drier seasons in La Nina. So Tahoe, we're right in the middle between the Pacific Northwest and the Southwest. So we can go either way. Uh, but Southern California does better in El Nino usually. And yeah, my take is a little different than Brian's, but that's because I'm in Utah. Uh, we don't have nearly as much of a correlation in El Nino and La Nina. And I tell people, just don't pay attention. I say, do what you're doing, Jonathan, and just ignore it because like at most, you're just ever so slightly you know, adjusting the odds in your favor or against you. And like, you could easily have a big winter in a La Nina that you're expecting it to be dry or vice versa. I mean, it can go anyway. And we really, I mean, we've looked at this, we have enough events over time here in Utah, that I say, it's not a big enough deal um, for ski purposes to pay any attention to. Now, globally, El Nino and La Nina have huge consequences globally. But I'm not going to talk. Now, if I were actually saying there's a few exceptions like Crested Butte, I would be much happier in an El Nino than La Nina because Crested Butte does really well in southwest flow storms. So you're going to get more of those as you get a strengthening southern jet stream in like Crested Butte or down in like the San Juans, Wolf Creek. Those are other areas that are going to get dumped on in those type of storms and you're more likely to get those in an El Nino. So maybe you could be an exception there in Colorado and Brian, definitely. I agree. California, it's a big deal, but for Utah, I'm of the, just ignore it, you know, mentality. But you talk about the ski area hype on snowfall reports. They love the hype El Nino. And it's, it's really frustrating because for us, I think it's a 60, 40 split for snowfall above and below. It's not something you should be hyping like, oh my gosh, this huge year is coming because it's El Nino, but they will. They will market the crap out of an El Nino or an El Nino um, and get people all ramped up for past sales, <laughs> even though there's not much correlation. So we do kind of cringe as forecasters on that hype. By the way, for people listening, maybe we should define a couple terms here. Like what is El Nino? What is La Nina? What are they supposed to signify? How good are you guys at breaking down you know, like which side you should be rooting for, depending on where you live, that type of stuff. Well, at its core, uh, El Nino and La Nina are part of the ENSO cycle, which just stands for El Nino Southern Oscillation. But it's just, it's a measurement of sea surface temperatures in the Central Pacific, a little region of the Central Pacific. And La Nino is cooler than average and El Nino is warmer than average. So it sounds crazy, but those that area of warmer or cooler water has huge implications on the jet stream um, in north in the northern hemisphere. So that's what it is. So when it's an El Nino, like we're going into this year, that means those waters are a little bit warmer. Um, but I don't know. That's the definition specifically of an El Nino and how you measure it. Um, but it really does. It does have far-reaching consequences in different parts all over the world this little area of warmer or cooler uh, than normal water. Brian, what about the lines? Like we talked about like Utah is maybe a place where it just doesn't tend to move the needle as much. 
but help people understand if they if they care to be on like the rooting side, if they live in New England or if they are living, you know, in the southern Rocky Mountains or something, like where should where where do we know that the correlation tends to be strongest? You said California. Uh, yeah, and then across the southern U.S., if that southern branch of the jet stream, uh, it'll it'll come into the southwest and across the southern U.S. and sometimes exiting out through the southeast into the Atlantic. So, having that stronger jet stream down there, it can, um, you know, it, it, it tend to have more low pressure down through that area, and then that can actually help to draw down cold air from the north as well over the continent. So I'm on the west coast, so uh, we don't deal too too much with cold air coming down out of the Arctic in Canada because our air is mostly modified off the Pacific. But that cold air over the land, that's harder to warm and it, and it tends to draw it farther south in the eastern U.S. And so you have those storms that can come up the coast sometimes or come far enough north to come into that colder air. So usually the mid-Atlantic does pretty well in El Nino uh, and the northeast can get nor'easters. But I that's not my expertise, that region. <laughs> the Pacific Northwest should 100% be rooting for a La Nina, uh, British Columbia as well. Um, so El Ninos for them tend to be a little drier and milder. They get much colder air and more snow in La Nina. So that's one place for sure that I it does make a difference. So I want to ask you to how in the world you got into this whole forecasting game. Evan, let me start with you. Were you like the six-year-old kid who couldn't wait to go watch, you know, the local weather on TV or something? What kind of weirdo were you that led you to this life of yours? I was exactly that kid. Like, No, you weren't. Were yes. <laughs> I was the kid who, in my whatever sixth-grade career day, went and job-shadowed the local meteorologist at in Reno when I, near where I grew up. So I was absolutely that kid. I was the kid who watched... <laughs> Just sat there watching snow falling outside. Uh, that was me, a hundred percent. So, I was the snow nerd. The snow nerd I am today. I was that same way when I was four and five years old. Love it, love it. Wait a sec. So then, what did that mean for you um, in terms of your education? Like, did you go off to college or something to specifically learn more about this stuff? Yes, I did, and. I actually went to college initially wanting to do a master's program in hurricane forecasting of all things. Um, but it turns out masters are expensive to get. And when I graduated with my bachelor's, I had a computer science degree and I left, I was like, okay, I'm not going to do this as a job. Uh, so I left, you know, meteorology completely and it was just working. And it wasn't until after moving to Utah, I was like, man, there's not really good forecasts. And I had the knowledge so I was just telling friends about when the powder days are going to be. And then they kept, I put that in an email distribution list. And then they kept asking me to add more people. And I was like, this is getting annoying. I'm just going to put it on a daily blog where I'll just tell you when the powder days are going to be. And that blew up. So here we are. That was 13 years ago, 14 years ago. And now it's my full-time job. So things snowballed for lack of a better term. Amazing. Brian, you looked so earnest as Evan was sharing that story. So you either had the exact same kind of you were that kid, but I, I just loved how how earnest and sort of uh, it was like you were cheerleading as as Evan was sort of laying this out. What's your what's your story? 
because I've heard Evan's story and Joel's story, and it was they're all so similar. Uh, we were these three little weather nerds as kids, and for me personally, I annoyed the crap out of everybody uh, with the weather, especially snow and hurricanes, big weather events, because I grew up on the East Coast on the beach. And so nor'easters and snowstorms are my big thing. And I was obsessed with snow to an annoying point. And so I was called weatherman, I was called snowman. And the big thing is that in the in New Jersey, in the flatlands, nobody wants to hear about snow. It's a nuisance. It's a shut up. You know, with, nobody cares. And so to um, grow up, go to college, get some education and come out west to work in the ski industry. And then all of a sudden people wanted to hear every last bit of what I had to say about it snowing. It was a complete life changing event. You found your people. Found my people. Yeah, you found your people. It's important. <laughs> what What was the education track? Like people listening to this or young people listening to this, if they're like, what did these guys actually go study? Where did they get, you know, if it was, you know, any training after college or going into college, like what should people do who also want to be weather nerds? Yeah, well, for me, I was studying it before I got to college and studying it <laughs> brian's like i was yeah. seven years old reading all the farmer's almanacs <laughs> i have these little yeah. weather books my mom got me as a kid because uh, she knew i was obsessed with it and then i went to school for meteorology for a couple of years and then i actually was trying to figure out what the heck i was going to do with it because i was more of a storm chaser and and this is back in the mid 90s i'm like what am i going to do with this there wasn't really websites and and apps and you know all these cool things you could be with weather now uh, and there's only so many people that can get a job at Channel 6 News. So um, so I decided I was more interested just to make sure I was working in the snow and in the ski industry. So I switched to more of a business focus and then got a job working in uh, an office for a ski resort management company out in Tahoe when I got out of school. Uh, but you want people to do what Evan and I are doing. I'll let Evan, uh, he's, he's got his own uh, story on that track. But as far as starting your own weather company, I think it was helpful for us to not just have meteorology backgrounds. Joel, when he was in his master's program, was studying business as well. And I had studied business and weather. So to have that combination of entrepreneurialism, business education, and meteorology background combined, I think helped to build like a, a weather company. Yeah, I would say that truly you don't need to do what we're doing, you don't need a formal piece of paper telling you you can do it. There's so much information in the world, so many careers out there now, you don't have to go to school to do them. You can learn this all on your own if you have you know, the motivation to go out there and do it. It's all out there. With that said, if you want to do research, if you want to get published, if you want to advance you know, academically the, the science of atmospheric sciences and meteorology, I would recommend going and getting a formal degree and going that path. But I mean, for us, we both, Brian and I both went in a different direction and it was just our passion for this, our entire lives that like by accident brought us back to like this career. I would use this career. I mean, it sounds, I guess, ideological and romantic, but we were like destined to do this. And I feel like I'm living out my destiny from when I was a kid. And you talked about being a weather-obsessed kid. There's this story, and I don't think I've ever actually publicly told anybody this, but I used to have a little baking timer, and they used to do the Weather Channel local on the 8s when the storm was coming in. You know, they would give the local for you. I would set it for seven minutes, 
And then as soon as it finished, I would start it. I'd go out and play with my friends outside. And then when it went off, I had one minute to get back inside and watch the most recent update of weather on the eights where I could see the local radar because I didn't have internet. There was no way to see radar except for doing that. And so literally that's what my life was like as a kid. But now it's all there. All these models we talk about, almost all of them are publicly accessible. You can go out and I encourage people, go out and look at these models. Try to make your own forecasts. Try to see when you agree with me, when you don't agree with me. I mean, don't publicly humiliate me when you're better than me, but you know, it's all out there for you. Yeah, I'm, I'm super. I'm a, I'm a little older than Evan. Not that much older, but old enough that I remember the the, the evening news. That it, it was just little Velcro things they stuck on for the sun and the rain. I mean, there was nothing digital. Yeah. And my dad ran the highway authority plow. Uh, he called out all the snow plows in New Jersey for the highway. And so he would. I'd be in the office with him and. There was no internet or anything. If, and if it wasn't six o'clock and the news wasn't on, how do you know when the storm's going to be almost there? There's no radar. So basically we relied on faxes from the Mount Holly Weather Service office. They would just send like an hourly fax with updates. That was it. That's all we had. <laughs> God, you're old, Brian. <laughs> yeah, he's so old. By the way, this raises a, a great question. How do you deal with people or what is the kind of responses you guys get if and when you get a forecast wrong does it does it happen much are people nice do you hear from people is it kind of crickets what let's talk about when it when you do get it wrong yeah it happens it definitely happens to me i'll be the first to admit i mean it's an imperfect science and sometimes we're wrong usually when we're wrong a lot of people are wrong cuz the models were wrong but I've been wrong before. I've had gut feelings. I just posted a couple weeks ago. I have this gut feeling that the end of November is going to be really snowy in Utah. And it's not like we're close enough now. I can tell you it's not going to happen. My gut feeling was wrong. And the way you deal with it is you're totally transparent. You just say, yeah, you know, what? this is why I thought that or this is what we saw. And it didn't happen. And you learn from it. And hopefully next time you do better. And I mean, as long as you do that, people respect honesty and ownership of saying this was not what I expected to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's harder in the beginning because people are kind of feeling you out. Like, who are you to tell me? And then, oh, you know, you suck. You you, you didn't get that right. Uh, and then they give you ulterior motives like, oh, the ski resorts must have sent you a check last night to uh, make a fake forecast or something. <laughs> oh, yeah, I love this abuse. I love being wrong. Uh, I'm the biggest critic of myself, though. I don't like being wrong. So I want for myself and just because I'm a critic and I of myself and I want to be good at what I do. Uh, but staying off social media helps. Um, we don't have comment section anymore, which helps. And uh, but after we don't doing this for a long time, this is my 18th season now in Tahoe. And, I, you know, this is uh, 13 years now with open snow and people are used to us. They trust us because we're right more than wrong. And, um, so we don't get it as much anymore. And when we do, people will defend us. I mean, I trust you guys because I want my forecasters to be the kids that were self-identifying as super weather nerds and dorks. That is who I want telling me what's going to maybe happen with the weather. Mm -hmm. So, And we're so obsessed on such a micro thing. I mean, how much snow is going to sn snow we're going to get at the local ski resort? 
it's such a micro forecasting zone uh, compared to most meteorologists. Like you're on the Weather Channel, you're forecasting the whole United States. We're forecasting a mountain in one region. And so, but we're really good at forecasting for that one mountain compared to other people. So you could have somebody, and we have people that are forecasters on our team that have doctoral degrees and they're professors. And, you know, we have, we have a big range, but uh, we've said before, like, you could bring in the smartest meteorologists from Weather Channel and bring them into Utah or Colorado or Tahoe and have them try to beat us on a snowfall forecast for tomorrow at that ele each elevation at that mountain. And we're going to kick his butt probably. So um, we're just so hyper-focused in such a small thing. Watch out, Brian. Al Roker is going to be knocking at your door any second. Yeah, He's coming after me. <laughs> <laughs> It's what we like to do. It's what we like to do on the Blister podcast. It just start yeah. beefs, <laughs> and and especially like across, you know, like across different industries, and like, yeah. So I, <laughs> let's keep it coming. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I doubt Al Al Roker ever was setting a timer, you know, to be sure that he got inside from playing to catch the news. That guy. That guy's basically a fraud, as far as I can tell. Talk to us a little bit more about how you guys got into sort of the open snow family. Like I talked to Joel about this and I thought it was really interesting um, hearing Joel talk about the business side of open snow and sort of that origin story, but I haven't talked to any local forecasters, right? Who sort of came into that and created these sort of this really interesting network. Um, it's kind of like the hall of justice, right? Like we got, Aquaman teamed up with Batman and Superman type of thing. That's the highest compliment you're getting paid that I just compared you, you know, basically to, you know, I got Batman and Superman here, at least of the weather dork world, you know, little caveat, but still basically superheroes. Talk a bit about that. Brian, I'm going to let you start with that one. It's really hard to find good forecasters and it's pretty not good forecasters in general, but it, that can live in the mountains because there's not a lot of usually big, good paying meteorology jobs in mountain communities. <laughs> uh, so to find meteorologists that live in the mountains, ski, know the terrain in that area, can forecast well for it. And then the icing on top is they have to be able to write well and communicate well. And so you had three guys who are already doing that, that it was pretty... Uh, serendipitous, I guess is the word that <laughs> me, Joel and Evan ran into each other as open snow was, uh, you know, coming together before it was launched and just getting to know each other. So Joel reached out to me, uh, the season before he launched open snow officially because he had seen my Tahoe weather discussion website and he had Colorado powder forecast. Uh, and so he reached out and said, Hey, we're going to launch this site. And I'd love to just merge the two and bring you over. And we do it together instead of separately and competing. And, uh, yeah, so we just, it just, he, he contacted me at the right time. I was having kids and working an, another full-time job and I didn't want to start my own website from scratch. I didn't have the time. Um, and so, Evan came in pretty quick within that first year as well that we reached out to him and had conversations with him. But to get these three guys who already had their own websites forecasting well with big audiences in the three major ski states to all end up on the same team together at the beginning. I mean, Joel, I'm sure will tell you. <laughs> it was pretty amazing to get us together like this. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was absolutely fortuitous. Everything went together and came together just right. And um it's 
difficult to find forecasters everywhere. We've done a very good job. It's taken us a decade, but we have forecasters all over the United States and even Canada now that we're very proud of, and we're adding more forecasters throughout the world, um, South America, Europe, all of those, and we're we're growing the team. But I think it's really cool is we kind of we're like writing these free blogs, and then you know when we first went to Open Snow, we said, hey, we're going to give you all this stuff. These blogs, it's free still. Like you just read these blogs. We do all this, but we're launching a subscription service and maybe you get a few other things, but mostly we just, in those first few years, we were like, we want to build the best ski weather tool anybody's ever seen. And we need your support to do it. And tons of people signed up and said, Hey, I don't really know if it's worth a subscription right now, but I like what you're doing and I just want to support you. And here we are, we've added, you know, 10 employees over the past, you know, seven or eight years. And, we've built what I'm really proud of. We built open snow, which is a website and an app that has so many cool features. And we're adding so many features all the time that like longtime subscribers are always saying, Oh, I didn't know you did that. And I'm showing them all these cool new things you can do. And we're just taking all that faith of people in like believing in us and subscribing to us. We're taking the money that we earn from that. And we're just pouring it back into the company and saying, we are going to build the coolest weather app you've ever seen. And I think it's already there and it's only going to get better. Like the things coming down the pipeline are so cool. I can't wait for people to see where we are. I can't wait to see where we are personally uh, a year from now, two years from now and five years from now. Like I think we're going to have everything and you won't need to get weather from anything else because we are heading in that direction. Yeah. It's, it's amazing what our, what, what our, subscribers do like evan said we have a channel called user feedback on our slack and several times a day alan who uh feels most of our emails he is posting user feedback in there and we're discussing it and then in our weekly calls we discuss it and then in our annual uh meetings where we put together ideas for the next six months we discuss it so <laughs> a lot of the company where it's gotten to has been driven by the people that are using it yeah it's really cool and i I can't think of too many examples across like the global snow sports world where there, you know, and, and we were talking a bit before we started recording, um, you know, it, you guys bootstrapped the company. And so we know who owns it. There aren't these external VC pressures or corporate pressures to make some, short-term decisions that end up kind of sinking the whole ship in, you know, or compromising uh, in terms of a long-term vision. It's been really fun. It's, it's fun to hear your respective enthusiasms for what's happening there and what's coming out next. And, and then the loop of the subscribers and user feedback to help make maybe some of those decisions of like, what should we roll out next it's fun. I wish I wish there were zillions and zillions of examples of companies that kind of have origin stories like this and are still operating like that today. And there are a number of wonderful companies out there, to be sure. Now we're talking across every industry, but it's just kind of heartwarming to hear, you know, something like this where, I don't know, maybe I particularly am thinking about what just went on with OpenAI mm -hmm. 
in the last seven days. And I'm like, that's the craziest stuff I've ever heard, <laughs> you know? And um, mm-hmm. we, we have too many examples in too many industries where there was a really, really cool company and then it completely got driven into the ground through ownership changes or the rest. And so um, it's nice that um, I'm not going to be worrying about y'all too soon. I mean, we've heard stories from people, Joel's friends of people that have sold businesses and regret it. And uh, it, But it's hard. I mean, you put your, all your passion into it. And that's when companies are usually at their best is when somebody's putting their passion in. It's all about the product, not the revenue. But then somebody notices with a lot of money and they offer you this big giant check enough to retire on. And you're like, it's hard to turn that down. It's like my, my family's going to be set for life with this check. Um, so, so we're still Joel and the company are still product driven. That's, that's all that matters. Um, obviously we need some revenue to, to uh, keep things moving, but it's all based on everything that moves us forward every day. And excited is the product. And it's a team of meteorologists run by a meteorologist and developers building cool stuff. And we're all skiers mostly. So, um, yeah, it's what the product, uh, and we get as excited as the users for the new products when they roll out. We're trying to make stuff for ourselves as much as the users because we're all using it ourselves. And so I think that's what makes everything so unique. Yeah. Speaking of that, maybe I'll ask you both pick one feature that's been rolled out, let's say within the last 24 months. Is there one that, Brian, you have a particular favorite or you're proud of? Evan, do you have a different answer? Well, I don't know Brian's answer, um, but we rolled out Forecast Anywhere, which was a huge undertaking. And it's exactly what it is. Like you can use our maps... And we have tons of overlays of different parameters you can see in our weather maps. Um, And you can go anywhere in the world and just tap and drop a pin, and you'll get our custom forecast for that exact location. And then you can save it as a favorite and name it. It can be part of your winter favorites, your summer favorites. There's like no shortage of all the different options you can do. But to be able to give the same forecast we give for ski resorts, but for literally any point on the entire globe is... It took a lot of work and a lot of time, but it's rolled out there and it's something nobody else has. Take that, Al Roker. <laughs> and 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 we were able to do that because we built our own in-house uh, algorithms and in our own media. So we have our basically like our own little weather model that pulls all this model data. But we're able to weight it the way we want it. We're able to adjust the formulas for snowfall forecasting based on our own experience of our forecasters. And we're constantly able to tweak it. Last year, we saw a lot of snow and a lot of big storms. And then we went back and we're like, uh, you know, in this type of a storm, it's producing too much snow in the forecast for what's actually happening. What are we getting wrong with our formulas? And we just go in there and adjust them. We're not relying on outside data for for those forecasts to make those small adjustments to the snowfall forecast. Um, so that's been one of my favorite things. Um, and then estimated snowfall in the backcountry and outside ski areas, I think, is really cool. Because now you don't need anyone to measure it. You know how much snow fell pretty close to it. Um, anywhere. So out in the middle of the wilderness, it, we know how much it snowed last night. Pretty good. The, the super friends are feeling themselves right about now. You can hear it. You can hear it in their voice. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's deserved. Before I let you guys go, I opened this conversation by calling you a couple of flakes. People maybe wondered 
why I did that, but it's because you have a podcast called The Flakes Podcast. Tell us a little bit about it and um, frequency, what you're doing over there. If there's a young, like a young Brian, a young Evan listening out there, you know, how they would find it, that kind of stuff, you know? So it's The Flakes Podcast and it's, you can just look it up by that on uh, Google Podcasts or Spotify or Apple Podcasts. So we're there. And originally during the pandemic in the 2020-21 season, myself and our Southern forecaster for Southern California, Mike Crocken, who is a younger guy who, who graduated with his master's in meteorology just a few years ago. Him and I li both live in Reno. So we were both bored during the pandemic and said, let's start this podcast that we've always kind of thought that would be fun. So we did. <laughs> so then we brought Evan in the second season and it's been great to have the banter. It's just the ski week. So the ski season, it basically starts right around Thanksgiving and ends right around Easter and goes right through the ski season once a week, 20, 21 episodes. And we basically within 30 to 45 minutes run through where it's been snowing, where it's going to snow. And then we try to be as lighthearted and funny as possible. Uh, we call it your lighthearted discussion of mountain weather. Yeah, if you were listening to this podcast and you heard Brian or I just lifting, listing off from memory all these numbers and stats that we don't have these written down. We just know this all. If you were listening to that with rapt attention and were like, I love these type of stats, then this is the <laughs> podcast for you because it is – it's a nerd fest of snow. People who are obsessed with snow, where it's going to snow, how much it's going to snow, where they can go to chase powder. Um, that's what it is. And I got to be honest, when I started listening to it and when we were first on it, I was like, really? People want to listen to this? Like, are we really going to have anybody? And last year we were in Tahoe and people were recognizing us just by the sound of our voice from the podcast. And we're used to people kind of recognizing us from open snow, but they weren't saying open snow. They're saying, oh, it's you from the Flakes podcast. So there are people like that and who enjoy listening to that snow nerdism out there. And so if that's you, then this might be your podcast. <laughs> Once again, we're just helping people find their people. <laughs> I love it. We're just bringing people together. It's what we do here, you know? Well, that and make fun of Al Roker and try to start yeah. beef. So we're either trying to create beefs or bringing people together. And, you know, in a conversation like this, we do a little of both. <laughs> Feel free to kind of introduce some of that into your, your Flakes episodes, right? A bit more more beefs and or bringing people yeah. together. Yeah. Let me know how that goes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Hey, gentlemen, appreciate you talking to me on a Wednesday afternoon, specifically because it has sort of helped take my mind off the fact that I am not skiing like across the street right now. You're welcome to my doctor, uh, Gloria, who told me, who like begged me not to go ski opening day, let this arm, give this arm a few more days to heal up. But, um, but really fun to connect. And, um, you know, as an open snow user and on behalf of the zillion of open snow users out there really appreciate what you guys do and hearing how you go about it. And certainly getting to hear your passion for these things um, is really fun. And uh, so appreciate you coming on to talk today. Thanks for having us. It was a lot of fun. Yep. You're, you're, you're one of our people. I am. I get yep. to be one of your people. Yes. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, 
maybe next year, just to spice it up, we'll have to create some sort of fake beef. Okay. You know, just to keep keep people guessing and you know keep keep the paparazzi wondering. Um, but no, proud proud to be proud to be in the club. But mostly, I consider myself sort of a fan and an admirer. And uh, so so please just keep up the good work. Well do. Yeah, thank you. Great, thanks. All right, guys, take care. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And again, reminder. Go watch Apocalypse Snow. It's a free 26-minute film that you can find online because tomorrow morning we're doing episode number three of our new Blister Cinematic Podcast. Apocalypse Snow is on the agenda, and you're going to hear tomorrow why I couldn't be happier to be talking about that film. All right, everybody, thanks so much, and we will talk to you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.